Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. Great to be back here in the studio with you all. I got a two-part show coming your way. First, Ben Rhodes and I talk about what's been a pretty wild week in foreign policy news. We had the the legacy on foreign policy of George H.W. Bush, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We had a G20 where you saw the Saudi leadership isolated. You saw the U.S. isolated. You saw a maybe, maybe not agreement to end the trade war with China. And then we talked about Democrats and foreign policy and what they should be talking about in 2020, which leads into my next conversation with Kelly Magsman. You guys have heard from her before. She is a brilliant foreign policy thinker and writer for the Center for American Progress. We talked about Elizabeth Warren's big foreign policy speech last week and more broadly what Democrats should be saying out on the trail. So it is a great show. I think you'll enjoy it. And here's the conversation with Ben. Ben Rhodes is back. Back in studio. In studio, not in a hotel in Houston. (laughs) Although, you know, it must have been kind of poignant and nice seeing uh, Jim Baker you know, yeah. in the midst of all this emotional turmoil with, with George H.W. Bush passing away. Jim Baker was Bush's Secretary of State, Chief of Staff, best friend, basically, yeah. Yeah. from the days in Texas. So his passing was probably very tough on him. Yeah, and it's interesting. We uh, When I got there, I saw Obama, and he had just seen George H.W. Bush. Oh, really? So he was like, yeah, I got into town and went right to visit the guy. And yeah, so he got to say basically goodbye to him. He always liked, you know, George H.W. Bush was always very nice to Obama. Not many Republicans were. No, um, no and they weren't. So they were, you know, he was always very gracious to him. And so it was, it was a, a fortuitous opportunity for him to drop by and, and say goodbye, essentially. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue to the first thing I wanted to ask you, because I think it's fair to say that George H.W. Bush was the most experienced person who ever took the office of the presidency. He ran the CIA. Yeah. He was uh, he was ambassador to the U.N. He was yeah. our envoy to China. He was the vice president. Yeah. Uh, he was a member of Congress, though, that you know, it meant more back then, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he gets credit for managing the fall of the Soviet Union, the unification of Germany for driving Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. You worked for Baker, James yeah. Baker, former Secretary of State, like you're saying. We both heard Obama talk about how much he liked George H.W. Bush yes. and was impressed by his leadership, specifically the way he led the national security team and his foreign policy. What did you make of his record generally? Well, you know, if you asked Obama which recent president he admired the most in terms of their foreign policy, he would always say George H.W. Bush. Mm. Um, You know, I think basically anybody post John F. Kennedy, right, that's what Obama would say. You know, I think if you look at the way in which he led, number one, he always put alliances and international institutions at the center of what he did, mm-hmm. which is almost a stunning thing <laughs> to say, yeah. given how much his son did not do that, given how not. much Donald Trump <laughs> uh, you know, scorns alliances. But essentially, uh, you know, even w- when he pursued the Gulf War, he made sure that that was a U.N. Security Council-sanctioned effort. He built this coalition with dozens of countries. Um, his approach to the end of the Cold War was one that was very much focused on how do you strengthen international institutions like the United Nations mm-hmm. and NATO. He was pretty aggressive in pursuing Israeli-Palestinian peace, mm-hmm. um, you know, convening the Madrid conference that helped lead to uh, the peace deal between Israel and Jordan. So multilateralism alliances were at the center of his approach to the world. He also didn't kind of beat his chest and gloat, you know, this kind of Republican approach to foreign policy that makes it kind of this, you know, you humiliate other countries. Yeah, and, it's binary. You know, he didn't spike the football on the Cold War. You know, yeah. he, he understood that it would be destabilizing, essentially, if, if he was trying to grind the Russians' nose into the ground. Uh, so the soft landing was not, you know, preordained. And as I've heard Obama say many times, some of the best things you do as president are the outcomes that don't happen. Mm-hmm. And so it seems inevitable, right, that the peaceful breakup of the Soviet Union happened. But it wasn't inevitable. And, yeah. and part of the reason why is that George Bush was had a very deft touch in dealing with Gorbachev and dealing with the uh, newly independent Soviet Republic. So that's all to the good. I think, you know, as we have to acknowledge that nobody's record is perfect, no. despite the hagiographies that we see, you know, I think the biggest stain in terms of his foreign policy legacy kind of predated uh, his presidency was Iran-Contra yeah. and his uh, involvement in that, and then ultimately the pardons he issued for the people involved in Iran-Contra, which, you know, haunt us to this day because it, it's a potential predicate for what Trump may do. Yeah, I want to dig into all of that. 
we don't do a very good job in this country, I think, of putting ourselves back in the shoes of the leaders at the time. But, you know, a reunified Germany wasn't necessarily yeah. going to be a great thing. I think the UK, the French, they were understandably a little worried given yeah. World War One, World War Two. But he managed that process pretty deftly. Yeah. And that's why you see, you know, Angela Merkel flying all the way across the world to go to this funeral. Um, you know, the Germans recognized that he was an advocate for the peaceful unification of Germany at a time when, yeah, the, that that was not a foregone conclusion. Yeah. So you mentioned Israel. It is really interesting to look back at George H.W. Yes. Bush's policies yeah. on Israel. He used to do battle with the right-wing Israeli yeah. government on settlements in the West Bank. Uh, he even went as far as to urge Congress not to give Israel billions of dollars in loan guarantees. Uh, he fought, as you said, hard for a two-state solution. And when his administration thought the Israelis weren't being serious enough about engaging in peace talks, Jim Baker famously said, uh, the White House phone number is 202-456-1414. When you're serious about this, call us. Yes. I mean, fast forward to 2016. Yeah. Support for a two-state solution was dropped from the GOP platform before uh, Trump even was elected. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. Jim Baker you know, became kind of this boogeyman with APAC and... You know, he's been called an anti-Semite, you know, just because he pursued, you know, I think a balanced view that there needs to be two-state solution and was willing to apply some amount of pressure on Israel. You know, mild, you know, know, restricting loan guarantees is not the same as kind of cutting off all assistance. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they were willing, you know, it's funny, Obama was called, you know, anti-Israel and anti-Semite for much, much milder (laughs) things than what George H.W. Bush and Jim Baker did. So it is an interesting signal as to how far politics have moved to the right on on issues related to Israel in both the Republican Party Mm -hmm. and in Israel itself, right, where, you know, I think there were governments under Yitzhak Rabin who were willing to work with the United States that was uh, focused on promoting peace. So Bush's passing highlights a lot of how things have changed in the last two decades. One of them is that an even-handed approach to the Israeli-Palestinian issue and the Arab-Israeli conflict that seeks to promote peace used to be kind of in the mainstream of the Republican Party and what establishment figures like Bush 41 and Baker stood for. Nobody in Congress would take that position. No. He's a Republican. Nobody, no Republican nominee would ever take those positions. So the, the party has just moved along with Netanyahu and Israel all the way to the right. And, and Netanyahu was one of those people that Baker clashed with back in the day when he was kind of a, a young up-and-comer in Israeli politics. So, you know, we, we are truly in a different world, and that's because of the rightward drift of politics in Israel and on the politics of Israel in mm-hmm. the United States. Yeah, with the exception of uh, Trump, I think it's a bipartisan thing to have clashed with Bibi Netanyahu yes. and yeah, yeah, probably yeah. to yeah. dislike him personally. Yes. You mentioned Iran-Contra, too. So, yeah, the Iran-Contra affair happened when he was the vice president, but very much worth a mention. The quick and dirty version is that in 1985, Reagan's NSC approved the sale of missiles to Iran, in the hopes that it would secure the release of U.S. hostages being held in Lebanon by Shiite terrorist groups. This was during a period of time when we were sending our diplomats around the globe saying, don't sell arms to Iran, lecturing other countries, uh, but we were secretly doing it. A portion of the proceeds of that arms sale was diverted by Reagan's NSC and given to the Contras, who were an anti-communist guerrilla group fighting the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, which was socialist leftist. This violated explicitly the Boland Amendment, which banned direct or indirect U.S. military support to the Contras. So big time illegal. (laughs) Um, In 92, fast forward several years, when Bush was president on his way out the door, he pardoned several Iran-Contra defendants, including Casper Weinberger, Elliot Abrams, others. And so, you know, there's a few pieces of this yeah. thing. Like, there's the pardon element, which really prevented any real accountability, including for himself, yes. because they were in the process of trying to get his notes to figure out what he knew and when. But bigger picture, it was part of a bunch of policies the U.S. was supporting at the time in the 80s of propping up fascists and giving money yeah. for death squads in yeah. Central America. So, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week, but not great. Can we just, Tommy, do like episode 72 in the Benghazi hypocrisy? <laughs> yes, please. They fucking bought, like sold weapons to Iran 
to launder money to death squads in it's Central such America. A crazy. Like it is fucking insane that that ever happened. Like I know. it's one of those things. You know, Iran Contra just sounds like something that yeah. maybe you heard about once. When you peel back the, the layers of what was happening, and these were like the most senior people at the NSC involved in these meetings, right? So thinking about like, well, we're going to deal with the Iranian Revolutionary Government, right? Like in pretty soon after Khomeini overthrew the Shah, we're going to deal with these people so that we can launder money against the law because Congress has blocked us from doing this to some death squads in Central America. <laughs> Imagine being in the meeting when that came up. Yes. Someone had that idea. It, it, I, I mean, okay, so like, just like, put that aside for a second. And, and then actually when you look at this, you know, Bush 41, you know, I think is two of the things that people have rightly criticized. Mm-hmm. You know, one is, and you guys probably dealt with this on PSA, but like the, the, the bare knuckle politics that he would farm out, right? Sure. The Willie Horton stuff. But the other thing is like sometimes the clubby loyalty that people admire, right? Yes. The, has a dark side, you yeah. know, um, when you're, you know, he was at the RNC around Watergate, you know, he was at the CIA, you know, when, you know, they were kind of coming out of the church committee years, but then on Iran Contra, he pardons all these guys. It matters to him because if the Weinberger trial went forward, right, because they're prosecuting Weinberger, Bush's diary, he kept a diary apparently when he was vice president, could have been put forward as evidence. Mm-hmm. And I think the widely held belief is it would have demonstrated that Bush was in some of these meetings, yeah. right? The, and it's not uncommon, as you know, for the vice president sometimes to chair or participate in NSC meetings, and the trail was leading up to Bush. And so he pardons all these guys, and part of what he does is that you know gets the heat off of him. The prosecutor has long complained that Bush essentially averted accountability for what he did. And I have to say, like, it's pretty remarkable— to hear those names, I mean, Ollie North is now the head of the NRA. Mm-hmm. Elliot Abrams went on to serve in a very senior, you know, deputy national security advisor role under Bush's son. Mm-hmm. You know, is kind of one of the leading Republican voices on foreign policy. So these guys really got a pass yeah. for some pretty extreme political activity. And and so again, I think the darker side of the legacy on Iran Contra is it, it's the same thing that, frankly. Bush's son did not do for Scooter Libby, right? That, oh, we just take care of our own, even when they do, you know, pretty illegal, terrible shit. And and I do think that it's worth people taking another look at Iran-Contra and unpacking that, because it does speak to a view of, you know, if, if we're Republicans, we can do whatever the hell we want. <laughs> you know, uh, we can break the law, we can funnel arms against Congress's will to death squads, you know, we can be hypocrites and deal with the Iranians. If Democrats, so much as, you know, write some talking points we don't like, we're going to investigate them for four years. I I think Iran-Contra is a a case study in how they think the rules don't apply to them. And and that's a thread that you can draw through the Iraq war intelligence, you know, all the way to today. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) In our day, the NSC gone wild was when people were being micromanaging. I can't imagine like selling arms to another country and funneling them to a terrorist group. By the way, if you're listening and you are like, what the hell is Iran-Contra? There is an incredible book called The Nightingale Song, which is by a journalist named Robert Timberg, which tracks this Naval Academy graduating class of like 1968, which is a lot of people you mentioned who were involved in Iran-Contra. Bud McFarlane, Jim Webb, who became a Democratic senator from Virginia, and their time in Vietnam and how it later informed some of the things they did in Iran-Contra. It's it's one of the best books I've ever read. And, and, you know, just one more thing on this is that, like, it wasn't like some fringe set of characters and issues, right? These were, like, the inside players, and these were the preeminent foreign policy issues of the time. You know, the fight against Mm -hmm. communism in Central America, Iran, getting the hostages released— so this is like, I think it's it's hard for us to get our minds around how much this was at the center of the Reagan White House, the Reagan NSC, and how, you know, the Democrats were pretty judicious in how they went about investigating it. They didn't, it wasn't a gotcha thing. It was like, let's pull the thread on, get these facts. And Bush did kind of take an eraser and wipe the chalkboard clean yeah, here he at the end of his presidency. There was some breaking news today, which was after the Trump White House initially refused to allow its CIA director, Gina Haspel, finally gave a classified briefing to some select members of the Senate about the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, Senators emerged from that meeting totally convinced that the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman or MBS, ordered Khashoggi's execution. 
Senator Lindsey Graham said that while there was no smoking gun, there was, quote, a smoking saw. Cool mm. soundbite yeah. referring to how he was dismembered. Bob Corker said, quote, if the crown prince went in front of a jury, he would be convicted in 30 minutes. That stands in a pretty stark contrast to Trump, who still claims the CIA didn't conclusively show that MBS was involved. And it seems to go further than whatever spin Secretary Mattis and Secretary Pompeo offered to the full Senate last week when they briefed. So what the hell happens next? I mean, this seems like a, a, an enormous deal. It's an enormous scandal. I mean, you know, basically what we now know is that MBS orders the brutal murder of this journalist in a third country. And we knew about it. Mm -hmm. You know, the CIA clearly had information. If you read the reports, right, no surprise to anyone. One of the reasons, Tommy, some of us were so confident in asserting that, like, we must have known this is because anybody, you know, I don't think it reveals anything to say that anybody who works in the U.S. government knows that, like, the Saudis are a country where we might have a pretty good idea what's going on based mm-hmm. on our intelligence collection, mm-hmm. right? So that whole time, the reason this matters for a number, number one, that whole time Trump was saying, well, we don't know what happened. This could have been rogue killers. Trump was probably sitting on information that said MBS did this. Mm-hmm. So again, I know we get used to the lies from him on everything, but for him to be sitting on information from the CIA that says the Saudis brutally murdered this guy and MBS directed it and he's out there lying and inventing cover stories and saying it might have been rogue killers that is astonishing to begin with right then second he basically puts out that wackadoodle statement saying you know America first and I don't really care whether he did it or not we're going to be all in on Saudi Arabia you know at the same time he sends up Jim Mattis who you know we used to always hear these hagiographies about Mm -hmm. Jim Mattis being the grown up in the room and and Mike Pompeo, who was supposed to kind of restore the State Department's position, to basically lie to Congress. I mean, if you look, Pompeo's up there saying, well, you know, there's no direct reporting of MBS being responsible. And Jim Mattis saying there's no smoking gun for MBS being responsible. They said that to Congress and they said that publicly. And now we hear from actually Gina Haspel via the senators that that's totally a lie, mm-hmm. that the CIA actually does have indications that that MBS was responsible. To be even more specific, I mean, the Wall Street Journal reported that the CIA intercepted 11 messages that Mohammed bin Salman sent to an advisor who we know oversaw the hit squad at the time that they were murdering him. Yeah. And that seems like as smoking a gun as you'll ever find. Yeah. The the CIA is not Sherlock Holmes. Like they don't necessarily like, you know, dust fingerprints at the site of the scene. They collect intelligence. And if they have intercepts that show he's literally talking to the guy who's carrying out the operation, that's as ironclad as the CIA can get in saying this guy did it. Mm -hmm. So let's be very clear about what happened. Mike Pompeo lied to Congress. And this is a, a man who spent four years investigating Benghazi, who thought the Trey Gowdy's Benghazi report wasn't partisan enough. So he wrote a minority report to register some additional attacks on Hillary Clinton. A lot of that had to do with whether we misled people. He literally stands up on the most prominent issue in the world today and lies to Congress's face about it, mm-hmm. right? There need to be consequences. Yeah. Like, we can't just accept this as normal, that the President of the United States can lie about this, that he can send the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense up there to lie about it. Meanwhile, he's coddling MBS. He's acting essentially as his defense attorney to try to cover this murder up that's bad for every interest the United States has, Our, whether we care about freedom of the press, whether we care about sex, Saudi Arabia's out-of-control foreign policy in Yemen, our standing in the world, all this is suffering because of this. You know, there are questions about whether Trump has been bought and paid for by the Saudis. So I think the Democratic House needs to get this information out uh, in front of Congress and out to the public. Mm -hmm. If the CIA has this assessment, I don't know why it has to be classified. They don't have to put out intercepts, as the journal reports. They can put out that they think the MBS is responsible. We put out public assessments all the time. And I think the Democrats should insist on airing this facts and should insist on some accountability for these Trump officials who've been lying about this. Yeah, Chris Murphy, I saw tweeted today that we overclassify everything and that we should put out as much as we can about what we know when we knew it. I, I, I would love to see Adam Schiff hold hearings and maybe they're classified hearings at first, but they could figure out what was in the PDB, the yep. president's daily briefing, the most highly classified intelligence product in the world and when, yeah. and, and and lay that down on a calendar against his public statements. And we can figure out if he was lying or not. And they hopefully can figure out what, if any investments he or Jared Kushner have in Saudi Arabia, uh, because that definitely seems relevant because there's no, 
There's no other explanation yeah. here. I mean, Trump's numbers of arms sales that he keeps putting out, we know are lies. They've been yeah. debunked over and over again. So it's got to be something else. Yeah. And you know how this is like, that kind of assessment was probably pretty widely circulated. The oh, yeah. So you probably would have gotten that yeah. as an NSC spokesperson in one of those like cool yeah, yeah, brown binders. Yeah, I love, I love uh, I those things. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> what was know, the one I love? The DID? The DID. The, the, the Defense def- Intelligence Digest? Yeah, The yeah. coolest pictures of missiles and shit. You, you know, after you left, I think there was a budget cut. Because oh, no. it went from being on that glossy paper oh, no. to being kind of stapled. Oh. It was kind of a sad America in decline moment. Oh. The, the Defense Intelligence Digest no longer glossy. Sorry. Intelligence products were so fun to read. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but anyway, back to this. I mean, I yeah, I think that there's got to be some sunlight on this thing. And again, it has huge ramifications for our foreign policy because he, you know, MBS could have been on the ropes. The Saudis might have decided to make a mm-hmm. change and, and not have this kind of murderous dictator in charge. Yeah. But Trump basically gave him a lifeline. And we need to know why. And we need to know why Trump is lying to us about yep. it. And we need to know why people like Mike Pompeo think that they go up and lie in front of Congress. Yeah. So one good piece of news, uh, the G20 just happened. A few major things out of that. First is that Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, was treated like a pariah. Yeah. Uh, Some I of mean, the videos are kind of Yeah. Awesome. Oh, right. No one would talk to him. He's like this nerd standing, like, waiting for everyone to be his friend. It's like the guy waiting at the lunch table at school. Exactly. Macron wouldn't, was, like, yelling yeah. at him. Macron so the, wouldn't sit down with him with his that, that was good. I found it disconcerting and odd that the Russians had just attacked a couple of Ukrainian vessels and was, like, still holding their sailors hostage, yeah. and yet that was not at all the focus of the G20. That's the yeah. kind of uh, international forum where you should pressure them on this stuff. Lastly... The White House came out of the meeting claiming that Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping had essentially hit pause on the trade war, that the U.S. would suspend adding tariffs on Chinese goods for 90 days. You know, fast forward two days, it's not at all clear what was actually agreed to. Larry Kudlow said that China would buy more U.S. agricultural products and autos and couldn't explain how or why or you know how that would work with the WTO rules. So yeah. the stock market jumps 400 points when they first announced this today. Tuesday, it's down 750 points, the Dow. So this is like roiling markets. Things are a mess. This trade war is ongoing. So, you know, not great. Yeah, tariff man. Here's what I think is happening. You know, I actually think I know what is happening here, which is I I always feel somewhat nervous in suggesting I have an understanding of what Trump is thinking Uh and what's going on in the White House. So this trade war that he started with China without thinking it through, you know, he's been ratcheting it up. And it's begun to put some real strains on the global economy, mm-hmm. right? The Chinese economy might be slowing down. Inflation could go up here, right? Because part of what happens when you put tariffs on things is prices go up, and that can drive up inflation, and that can help lead to an economic slowdown, right? So there are a number of different factors where Trump's trade war with China could be accelerating the potential for a recession here. And he was scheduled to put in place a, a pretty dramatic and draconian additional round of tariffs on yeah, January 1st. That's a 25% right? or something? 25%. The Chinese would surely feel that they needed to respond. And so this risk of there being a recession would go up with each escalation of the trade war. Mm-hmm. So the people around Trump are probably saying to him, hey, look, the one thing that will guarantee that you are not reelected is a recession. Right. Like those 35 percent of the people that we always talk about, they always vote for Trump no matter Mm -hmm. what. No, they always vote for him so long as like they can just vote on their racism because they're not worried about the economy going off a cliff. Like if we really start seeing an economic downturn here, I think he's toast. So on the one hand, he's got some advisors saying you got to figure out a way to just do what you did on NAFTA, like declare victory, say, say the crisis is over and I won and get an off ramp. And then he's got some hardliners who actually want the trade war with China and like deeply believe in taking this all the way and, and trying to break the Chinese, essentially. And Trump actually is one of those people. Like he's one of the only things that he's been consistent on his whole mm-hmm. life is these protectionist trade attitudes. And I think we are seeing the schizophrenia play out. You know, I think Trump understood that he had to say for the sake of markets and for the sake of the economy, yeah, we got some deal. And he was doing the play of oh, I won, you know, and I got these concessions. But there was nothing there underneath it because they didn't really make a deal. They made a deal Mm -hmm. to not escalate and to talk about it. And Mm -hmm. that's such a Chinese thing. The Chinese love to set up a process, set up like 20 bureaucrats, come talk to 20 of our bureaucrats, (laughs) and you just kind of string it along. And so that's clearly what the Chinese want to do. And the Trump people don't seem to know what the deal is that they're trying to sell here, right? And so that's why we're caught in this ambiguous place where – there wasn't really any deal. The deal was to not escalate further and to talk about it. 
The Trump people need to sell something, though, so they're trying to sell different pieces of what they want. Nobody can understand what's going on here. And again, at a certain point, the Trump people are having to choose, are we going to risk sending the economy over a cliff because we're so invested in this trade war with China, or are we going to put some lipstick on a pig and say, well, because the Chinese agreed to buy a few Mm -hmm. more products in these sectors, even though they didn't really address our concerns, like we won this big victory, like you did on NAFTA. And I think, I think... It'll probably be the latter, but who knows? Yeah, there's just massive, massive political risk to our economy in a way risk, that yeah. I don't think that people have priced into the markets or no, really fully They really understand. haven't. It's because people didn't nuts. think that the United States would kind of shoot itself in the face. Yeah. Like, like our economy is going well. Like, you know, getting tough with China makes sense. But these kind of across the board things that have already hurt, you know, billions of dollars out of American industries, like jobs lost, like potentially you know, responsibility for those GM plan closings, mm-hmm. right? This is a ramification. And, and I think a lot of the stuff that Trump does, what is so difficult about dealing with Trump, is the consequences, particularly in foreign policy, they don't become apparent right away, but they're going to become apparent. Like mm-hmm. all these chickens are going to come home to roost for what he's doing. And we're starting to see them that happen on trade. It's going to happen on more and more things, right? And the kind of real world consequences of this reality show presidency are just beginning to come on board. And you see that in Mohammed bin Salman's killing of Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. You see that in, you know, GM plant closures. You know, you, you see that in the, the fraying, essentially, of U.S. alliances. And it's just going to get worse. And this is all because he's got a trade advisor named Peter Navarro that Jared Kushner found because he Googled, like, book on China yeah, yeah, and yeah, bought yeah. it on Amazon. Yeah. And that's how they hired the guy. Yeah. Literally true. The other striking thing out of the G20 was that the 19 of the 20 leaders put out a joint statement renewing their commitment to the Paris Climate Accords, and we were the only nation that didn't sign it. Now, obviously, no surprise. Yeah. Trump pulled out of it. He, as of last week, said he doesn't think climate change is real. But it yeah. it is maybe as glaring an example of our isolation on the world stage as you could think of. Yeah, and, and like, how are we going to explain this And like, I mean, how we explain it now, I don't know. But 10 or 20 years from now, when, like, the shit has really hit the fan. Yeah. And, like, we're in California, like, these with fires getting worse every year. Like, we've talked about the consequences of climate change. I, to be able to have someone come back in time from 20 years from now and, and look at the fact that the United States of America literally had a president who denied that climate change existed, the only country in the world— I mean, there's 19 out of the 20 in G20. We're the only country in the world that's on the Paris Agreement, mm-hmm. you know, um, despite all the evidence that is hitting us in the face about this. I mean, this is the, the most morally catastrophic thing that, that we're confronted with today. And I do think if Democrats are running for president in 2020, you know, just because we're on pod state the world here, mm-hmm. climate change is the leading national security issue mm-hmm. facing our, our country. It will be for the next 50 years. It's time to start framing climate change as a national security issue for a lot of reasons, including the fact that we're spending almost a trillion dollars on our defense budget. If you actually allocated money based on what actual threats are, risk, yeah. we should be spending a chunk of that on climate mitigation mm-hmm. and clean energy. Yeah. Just to button up something from last week, I mean, we briefly talked about the yellow vest protests in France over the gas yeah. tax. And I guess today, this morning, President Macron blinked and, and walked back and said he's going to suspend the tax that increase yeah. that was uh, slated for January for at least six months. So, you know, obvi- I don't, I'm not saying these things are related, but tough politics on these decisions. Yeah. And we're not giving him any cover when we're nope. denying the existence of climate change over here. Well, and that's one of the things that Trump did that pissed me off, you know, is after denying climate change, he said, well, the Chinese pollute their environment and it's drifting over here or oh something. God, yeah. uh, but again, he's Baffling. giving a pass to the Chinese, the Indians, all these other countries who we need to do more because they're just pointing at us and say, well, the Americans are falling behind on, on their targets. So at a time when we need everybody to be doing more on climate, he's giving people an excuse to do less. You were totally right that this protest got worse from Macron, worse than I thought. But again, it's because you know if he's the only one doing some of these steps, it seems like climate change is this kind of elitist concern mm-hmm. and not a concern that is going to affect everyday people. Um, it gets harder for political leaders to take hard decisions. And, you know, a guy like Macron, he's, he's not going to be able to do that alone. No, he's sure not. So later in the show, Kelly Magsman and I are going to talk about Elizabeth Warren's foreign policy speech. But more broadly, I mean, tis the season yeah. for everyone to go out and give yeah. their big framing speech because some advisor said you need to look like a commander in chief. If you were advising 
Kamala Harris or Beto O'Rourke or, you know, any of the many people who might run for president, like, what would you want to hear from them on the trail? Like, what's new and different and how would you frame it? I think what will be interesting is who can come up with a message that doesn't just sound like I'm giving my commander in chief speech so mm-hmm. I can clear some D.C. blob threshold. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so that four people from the Council on Foreign Relations can put out statements saying that they welcome my reaffirmation of the U.S.-Saudi strategic partnership. Morning right? Joe today yeah. endorsed yeah. <laughs> the speech I gave. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what you what will be very interesting is who can find the way to connect the energy of the activist who won the Congress for us in 2018 mm-hmm. and translate that into foreign policy positions. In other words, like what is a way to make people feel like they're excited about a foreign policy platform? I think who can be bold in saying and laying out how they're going to end these wars, right? We're going to get out of Afghanistan. And, and no, we're not going to half get out. We're going to get out of Afghanistan. It's, you know, people are fighting there who were born after the war started. Mm-hmm. Like it's time to bring that war to an end. It's time to terminate our support for the Saudi war in Yemen. It's time to end our, uh, our arms sales to Saudi Arabia. It's time to rethink our entire approach to the militarization of our foreign policy across the Middle East. It's time for a new authorization for the use of military force so that we're not in this endless war rooted in a law that was passed in 2002, right? Um, so I think one piece of this is being unapologetic and having a vision for how we're going to wind down the wars. I think a second thing is is looking at the defense budget, right? Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, Democrats have been terrified to talk about every election cycle, right? But Trump attacked um, his own budget on Twitter like two days well, ago, too. Well, even, you know, bizarrely. he's figured out that it's too, too high, <laughs> but it's, I mean, I'll just give you one statistic. We we're going to spend up to a trillion dollars modernizing our nuclear weapons infrastructure over the next decade. That's insane. We shouldn't be spending anywhere near that. And again, what if you took that money and spent on climate change? And, and you know what? Make the argument. Just make the argument. We don't need all these Cold War era bombers that we're still building. We don't need to develop a new ICBM, right? We need to be preparing for the threat of climate change catastrophe, right? And so somebody's speaking to reallocating our priorities when it comes to the defense budget and focusing on national security, but let's focus on our national security threats. And that's got to deal with a, a serious challenge from climate change. You know, I'm not a big management consultant guy, but if you were to come down from you know, outer space and look at what are the threats facing the United States and what do you spend money on? We spend money to fight wars that we're not going to fight. And we don't spend money to prepare for the thing that is going to cause conflict and mass migration mm-hmm. and, and, and huge national security challenges. So that's a second piece of this is is our budget, our priorities. How do we deal with climate? I think someone who can articulate what it means for America to promote democracy again and connect the fact that we have to get our democracy in order at home, right? So getting rid of voter suppression, like assuring the right to vote in this country is connected to preventing Russian interference in our election and having better cybersecurity around Mm -hmm. our elections uh, and combating disinformation in our societies and dealing with the tech companies uh, because it's a national security risk that you have foreign powers undermining our democracy. So someone who can tell a story about strengthening our democracy at home and then promoting democratic values abroad and standing up to the Saudi Arabias of the world and standing up to Putin again and once again trying to rally other countries for the things that we care about, Mm -hmm. right? So we could go down a whole list of other issues but I think somebody who can find that, that energy that people feel about, you know, we want to focus on the right priorities, the things that we actually care about. We want to restore our democracy. We want to have America stand for something again in the world. Someone who can, can touch that chord and not just check the boxes, I think, will be someone who can make their foreign policy message resonate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we did that in 08. But a lot of that was around the Iraq war, but it was also around, you know, diplomacy of the RAND. Right. Remember, like, and you and I were, like, remember at first people thought that was a mistake and ended up being a winner because it was authentic. That's what I've been thinking about, too. I mean, what is, so there was a debate where Obama said that he would talk without preconditions to all kinds of bad people and bad places, North Korea, Iran, Cuba. And that was treated not just by the Republican Party, but by Washington, D.C. as the craziest thing ever spoken. And by the way, it worked out fine for Obama. Hillary Clinton implemented those policies and uh, Donald Trump has continued them. So here we are. I'm wondering, like, what is that moment going to be? What is that issue? Maybe it's unknowable, but I certainly I would want to be doing exactly what you're talking about, which is how do we get people to give a shit about foreign policy? Because most of the time they don't. Iraq made it easy for us. But, you know, you need to organize around an issue and get people inspired by something. Yeah. And, and I don't, you know, it'll be interesting, you know, people care about the wars. They care about us sacrificing our moral authority. They care about our democracy. They care about climate change. 
they I think the budget, the defense budget is like this kind of thing that that somebody could have a moment on, right? Because, you know, half the candidates will want to sound like, well, I think we should spend even more, you know, give the, give the generals everything they need, you know, and somebody standing up and calling bullshit on that. Because that's what Obama did on the diplomacy with Iran is he's called bullshit. It's like mm-hmm. guys who tried not talking to them and they keep advancing their nuclear yeah. program. And people in Iowa appreciated that he was telling the truth, right? So I think whoever can find a moment where they call bullshit on some of these, you know, prescribed foreign policy positions i I think that would be a a good moment for yeah me too well i think we're about out of time but in a minute we'll go to the interview with kelly and i'm very excited to preview that next week the former u.s ambassador to israel dan shapiro a longtime friend of ours worked in the nsc is going to be here in los angeles in studio with us so we get to ask him all about bb getting indicted yeah his experience when he left the cocoon of the nsc to go uh spread his wings abroad yeah and all kinds of other shit yeah dan like every time for like four years was the man that bb would call him to chew out when obama did something yeah, he just like, got lit hey, up like, you know, bb didn't have the guts off and you know it always call obama right uh so he just kind of i think poor dan had yeah, to take summons. a lot of uh, but you know dan spoke we can talk to him the next time, but he became this kind of mini celebrity in, He's in, in Israel because he spoke perfect Hebrew. And even though he, you know, was controversial issues on Iran and stuff, he would always talk to the Israeli people directly in a language they understood. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah. that'd be fun. He's also just He's an, good an impossibly good nice guy. Yeah, the nicest guy. Ben, this yeah, has been fun. fun. Yeah, you talk next week. Yeah. Here's the conversation with Kelly Magsman. On the line from Washington, D.C. is Kelly Magsman, my friend and the vice president for national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress. Kelly has worked at the NSC. She's worked at the Pentagon. She's a friend of the pod. She's wicked smart, as we say in Boston. Kelly, (laughs) great to talk to you again. Good to be back. So last week... Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, uh, as long as we're doing accents here, gave what her team billed as a major foreign policy speech. I think we'll probably see some version of this from every potential 2020 candidate going forward. So I reached out to you to ask the question, what do you want to hear from these folks? What do we want to hear in these speeches? What policies? What kind of language? What should Democrats be talking about? But before we get to that, I wanted to start a little more generically because Every presidential candidate is told by some consultant along the way that they have to pass this, you know, ephemeral commander in chief test where some voter looks at you and decides, yes, I trust that person with the nuclear codes. I would argue that that it's sort of an inherently sexist test because you're asking someone if this person looks like a president that came before him or her, and maybe that the election of a buffoon like Donald Trump over an obviously qualified person like Hillary Clinton kind of explodes that, you know, old argument. But Do you think that there is some threshold that these candidates need to meet? Is there some speech you need to deliver before you're viewed as prepared to be president by the electorate? Yeah, I mean, I think every candidate's going to have to come out with some sort of narrative for how they view the world and America's role in it uh, over the next year. And I think, you know, the most compelling candidates are going to be the ones who can articulate a story about America and the world that connects, you know, foreign policy to the American people. I mm-hmm. think the biggest the biggest thing that we've seen with Donald Trump, and I think he tapped into something, was he struck a nerve about how foreign policy wasn't working for for Americans anymore. And I think that resonated. And so it'll be interesting to see how progressive candidates, especially Democrats uh, like Elizabeth Warren, position themselves on those issues, but also advance uh, a more uh, mature foreign policy approach than we're seeing with the current administration. So it's going to be a balancing act between, you know, appealing to the sort of sense of America adrift, but also presenting a more positive and affirmative vision for uh, fixing that uh, going forward, mm-hmm. more positive than Donald Trump. And I think, you know, frankly, I think they can do both. I think you can have an affirmative vision and still present a stark contrast to the Trump administration. Yeah. I mean, his foreign policy was kind of like the Middle East is a disaster. Iraq was a disaster. This country is run by idiots. The Iran deal was terrible. It was definitely more of a sort of tearing down of the establishment, which, you know, I get the appeal of that kind of message. But you're right. I mean, there has to be something proactive behind that as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've got a big opportunity coming up uh, with the new Congress. I think House Democrats are going to have 
a chance to really potentially build the the building blocks of that narrative. In addition to doing all the, you know, national security oversight work that they're going to have to do on the wars, in addition to taking on uh, the Trump administration's corruption both at home and abroad. Mm-hmm. But again, I think House Democrats have an opportunity as well as Democratic presidential candidates for building those that narrative over the next year. And I think, you know, Elizabeth Warren was one of the first shots fired. Uh, and I think, you know, I think she, I think, gave a decent outline of her worldview I think she's going to have to get a lot more specific over the next year in terms of presenting some solutions. Uh, but she played to you know her brand, which is focusing on economic corruption mm-hmm. and sort of corporate greed and how that transcends into the international space. Yeah. So let's let's dig into Warren's speech for a little bit. Um, and, and credit to her for you know sort of going first. Yeah. You know, in this crop of maybe twenty twenty hopefuls, she delivered the speech at American University on November twenty ninth. It was long. It was substantive. It seemed like an attempt to frame her foreign policy argument and worldview in a way that stresses her expertise, which is economic policy, and to make an argument that trade and economic inequality are key drivers of a lot of the challenges we face both at home and abroad. And I think there is a lot of merit to that argument. The interesting thing to me was that sandwiched in the middle was language about bringing U.S. troops home from Afghanistan, some language about cutting the Pentagon budget, some, you know, nuclear weapons policy. And so, you know, I get that you can't put everything into these speeches, and those choices are sort of the hardest part sometimes. But it at times seemed like a bit of a hodgepodge to me, because there was this thoughtful, big economic argument, but there also wasn't like an ISIS plan. I don't think North Korea, Iran, or Israel were mentioned. So she obviously has time to flesh that out. But you know, the choices sort of surprised me, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely multiple speeches sort of (laughs) arguing with each other into one. And, you know, I think, again, it's kind of our first shot out of the bag. I think, you know, the, the areas where I thought it was strong was, you know, some key themes. One is the importance of of democratic values and defending our allies and our democracy at home and abroad. I think that's incredibly important. I think that's going to be a huge progressive theme in the national security space going forward. So I think she she did do well there. Um, I think, again, the economic piece I thought was good, although it needs to be fleshed out. Where I think she you know missed an opportunity, and I think it's relevant to the wars piece, which is so important to progressives, is she didn't really articulate a, how she would think about getting us out of the wars. Mm-hmm. But also, she didn't really talk about how she as commander-in-chief would use force or what her you know sort of thinking is and principles around use of force would be. I think that's going to be a huge point of discussion over the next two years, and it could potentially present uh, some contrasts. So I think there were some missed opportunities, but again, I think like like you said, she gets credit for coming out early. You know, she's the one first one out of the gate, really, with with Senator Sanders as well. And you always get sort of you know taken. You know, people take a lot of shots at you. Yeah. So I think there's a lot more space for her to build on um, going forward. Yeah, you do get nitpicked to death when you're early. <laughs> so, I mean, if you were advising a candidate this cycle. What would you want him or her to talk about in their big foreign policy address and and on the trail this year? Well, I'm really interested to hear candidates talk about how we're going to deal with the challenge of China. You know, we really, as a nation, and this is frankly not even a super partisan issue, I think, you know, as a nation, we need to get our act together. And I think the, the comparative advantage for Democrats is that, you know, we can leverage our sort of domestic policy expertise to to address this challenge. Because I think, you know, most of it's going to be, most of competition with China is going to be about us and not them. Mm-hmm. It's going to be about how we make our economic model and our political model competitive with theirs over the next century. And that's going to require, you know, not just investments in high-tech defense, but actually investments uh, in our people. Um, our most, you know, competitive advantage is actually our, the American people. And so it's going to be things like you know, investments in college education, STEM education, you know, research and development, innovation. And I think that's where Democrats could really articulate a vision that connects what we need to do at home with what we need to do in foreign policy to compete with with China over the Mm -hmm. next century. So that's one big piece that I think has been missing so far in some of these discussions. That's interesting. And then I've also seen you write about and talk about rebalancing diplomacy and defense. Like, How would you yeah. flesh out that, the need to right-size those investments? 
Well, I think, you know, we've been making tremendous investments uh, in defense over the last uh, 17 years. And I think... (laughs) So much so that President Trump is now attacking his own defense budget (laughs) via tweet, which was a thing that was surprising this week. (laughs) Exactly. I'll take it. Um, So, you know, I think he's sort of making the case for us. I mean, he, you know, what we need to do is be thinking about what are the threats that we're facing for the next, you know, several decades? And are we spending the right amount of money... And also, are we spending it on the right things, which I think is actually far more important than the, the overall size of the budget. And I could, would argue that we've been spending a lot of money on defense in areas that are frankly, you know, out of date <laughs> uh, and relatively irrelevant to, you know, the challenges of like a China or a Russia. And so we've been spending a lot of money on a focused counterterrorism war, which I think uh, it's time for a big rethink on that. So, you know, that's where you know, progressives and, and Democrats have a chance to really articulate a vision for a more sustainable defense strategy and budget that's actually going to, you know, A, deliver for the Ameri- security for the American people, but also be like, you know, rational. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and then, you know, what are the tools to keep us out of wars? And that's where I think Democrats can talk about the importance of diplomacy, investments in, you know, diplomatic resources, you know, foreign and security assistance, that's going to be, I think, a place where where we should be focusing a lot of efforts as as Democrats. And frankly, you know, President Trump has you know degraded the State Department significantly. Diplomacy is definitely undervalued in the context of his foreign policy. So again, that presents a stark contrast. Yeah. And then I've also, you know, you've written about both for CAP and then for an op-ed you wrote with us for at, on crooked.com. You've talked about defending democracy at home and abroad. You want to elaborate on that at all? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think we are at the crux of a pretty significant challenge globally with the rise of authoritarianism. And I think how the choices we make today about how we position ourselves as the United States, but also working with our allies is going to determine the shape of the global order for the next century. And it is about competing with China and Russia. And I think we need to get serious about strengthening our own democracy, but also uh, strengthening the democracies of our friends and allies uh, to basically push back on this authoritarian tide. And that's mm-hmm. going to require us to do a lot of work. Uh, it's going to require us to build new networks and new coalitions globally. And I, I think, again, democratic values are something that, you know, should be a, an American value. But lately, with the, the Republican Party has not been uh, much of a value. And I think that's another space where we can fill um, going forward as Democrats. So, you know, I look back to to FDR gave a speech pretty famous one called the Four Freedoms Speech. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the arsenal of democracy speech that everyone's familiar with. And it's really about connecting the strength of our own democracy and the strength of the democracies in the, around the world together. And I think that's essentially where we may be again. But that's going to require some pretty significant choices, both on the foreign policy side and on the domestic policy side, mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that we are able to continue to retain primacy in the next century. Yeah. I mean, back to Warren's speech for a minute. I mean, I think, again, to compliment it, it was crystal clear on trade policy. She opposes Trump's NAFTA 2.0. She was very clear on what used to be a big debate back in 2009, in the beginning of the financial crisis, whether there should be austerity, you know, major budget cuts and deregulation or, you know, stimulus and investment in economies that are struggling. I think she's very clear on nuclear policy. She was crystal clear on Afghanistan but ever since I read it, I've been trying to think about, you know, the same question I asked you, what I'd want to see in one of these speeches. And and you're right. I mean, there isn't like a big sense of big picture how I would use force when and where, if when you would use drones, for example. But I was also thinking about the broader problem every candidate has when they run uh, in terms of talking about foreign policy, which is that 90% of the electorate doesn't really care as much as you <laughs> want them to. And people, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And people don't pay attention. I'm like wondering about how to focus people in on bite-sized, discrete things and build a movement around it. So for example, I've been so, so impressed with Chris Murphy and a bunch of senators who have built this coalition and movement behind cutting off U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition and war in Yemen. And I was wondering if there's a way you could call for like a diplomatic surge on human rights where Mm -hmm. you start talking about the State Department saying that there's 800,000 to a couple of million Chinese Uyghurs being held in Chinese internment camps. And in Burma, 
700,000 Rohingya were pushed across the border into Bangladesh in what has been called a genocide. And like, I'd love to see a candidate go to a dozen college campuses and start encouraging kids to lobby the way they did for, you know, the Save Darfur movement or, or other examples of like, you know, youth-based grassroots movements that really shows that, you know, you care about certain issues, you're focusing on specific discrete things, and then trying to like build a coalition around it. I mean, I do think there's, I mean, you've already seen a lot of foreign policy activism, just like you said. I mean, there's a lot of energy behind uh, ending the war in Yemen. I think the challenge will be that, you know, ending the war in Yemen is going to require a lot more than cutting off American assistance to Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. It's going to require a level of diplomatic (laughs) strategy that, frankly, the current administration isn't executing. And so, so you're right. I mean, I think if you look around the world at all those sort of intractable problems, whether it's Yemen, whether it's Syria, whether it's Burma and the Rohingya, uh, or whether it's China and the Uyghurs, you know, leading with our values and leading with diplomacy is going to be essential for actually solving these issues. And it's not, you know, security and, and, and military force is not the answer to these problems, mm-hmm. you know. And I think the American people get that. I mean, one thing you can definitely sense is this fatigue for American engagement. Uh, I think that's primarily around the Middle East, but I think it bleeds into a broader fatigue about the world. And so I think it's going to be really important for for any candidate to be able to articulate, like, why does foreign policy matter? Like, what are mm-hmm. we trying to do with it? Right. Like, what is the world that we're trying to build and live in? And how do we do that in a way that actually advances our interests and our values? Yeah. And the values piece is, is what's currently missing. And I think that's a place that we need to do more work on. Yeah, I agree. Because when I think back to 2007, 2008, it was easy to draw a distinction in the Democratic primary on who was for or against the Iraq war. And that mm-hmm. certainly helped foreign policy rise to the forefront in a lot of voters' minds. But I don't know what the equivalent issue is today. I don't know if there is one. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I was in Texas, actually, over the weekend at a, at a conference at the University of Texas, and Senator Sass actually gave a speech and on foreign policy. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree with everything Senator Sass says as, as a Democrat. But he did make one really important point, which was that we don't have a story for the American people on national security mm-hmm. that's compelling and that the nation can rally up behind. And I think that that is any candidate can tell a story and 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 present a vision for taking America forward that's positive and affirmative and compelling and genuine is going to be the one that prevails. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, Senator Sass, Republican from Nebraska, not someone I agree yeah. with much <laughs> either, but he's right. And I also think yeah. like if you look at polling, I do think people want to feel like America is respected and valued and appreciated around the world and telling that story is a key piece of that. Yeah. I mean, right now, I feel like Donald Trump's foreign policy is just about tearing up deals, taking our toys and going home, closing our borders, saying everyone is out to get us, that there is no common good, that there is no common purpose for you know democracy in America and the world. And I think that that's wrong. And I think most Americans, if you talk to them, would think that that's wrong mm-hmm. if you had a real conversation with them about it. So I think a positive, you know, less you know, scary vision of, of the world and, and, and our role in it is going to be what, what compels people. I agree with you. Kelly, thank you so much for uh, talking to me about this. I think one of these many candidates out there working on a speech would be smart to give you a ring. Are you, are you, you know, I don't mean to uh, create more work for all you. Th- but all 35 of them. Yeah, right. All 200 people running for president on the Democratic side. Might, might get a little busy. They need your help. Uh, Kelly, thank Thanks. you again. Keep up the great work at CAP and uh, talk to you soon. All right. Bye, Bye.